This is 112BK, coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn. On the show today, former DNA Info and Gothamist employees, some Weedicate from a Viceland host, an African and diaspora dance. By the time you're tuning into this, you'll know more than we do about who won and who lost in Tuesday's elections. We finished taping before the votes were counted, but when we come back next time, we'll have our own 112BK look at the results. Meanwhile, get ready for three great conversations. Hi, I'm Ashley Ford, and I'm back. Welcome back. Glad you're safe. I saw there were a few tornadoes that touched down in Indiana while you were there. Yeah, I saw one while I was on the highway. I left Brooklyn for literally 48 hours and almost got swallowed up by a tornado in the Midwest. But otherwise, the trip was interesting. I spoke at my alma mater, Ball State, about making connections meaningful. I should add that Ball State has yet to give me a degree, saying I need to pass a writing proficiency exam. A writing proficiency exam. Read one of my articles. Talk to my editors. I can do it. But I digress. We've got an important show today. Former staff from DNA Info and Gothamist on what the heck happened last week. The host of Viceland's Weedicate to tell us about pot status in New York. An African dance. But first, a few things. On election week, and yes, it's election week, I'm assuming all of you out there know that, even though only about 15% of New Yorkers usually act on it during off-year elections, I thought we'd look back, a hundred years back, to when women first won the right to vote in New York. I say won because it was hard fought, and a Brooklynite was instrumental. The year was 1917, and we were in the middle of World War I. How ironic that we were fighting for our values abroad and not adhering to them at home. But isn't that often the case, even today? But Louisine Havemeyer, an art collector and the wife of a sugar baron, was raising money for the war effort and then checked herself, saying, according to historian Elaine Weiss, I can't ask for money for a war for democracy when women who demand true democracy at home are thrown in prison. And the rest is history. Hey, Brooklyn, you made it! Into the pages of the Chicago Tribune, that is. In Tuesday's travel section, they're calling you the borough with a view. That's because so many high-end hotels are going up along the Brooklyn waterfront, like the One Hotel Brooklyn Bridge and the William Vale Hotel, which both have something you'll never find in Manhattan, a panoramic view of the Manhattan skyline. They're also calling it the epicenter of the country's craft renaissance, where creative entrepreneurs and artisanal food producers thrive, giving rise to hipster culture that has spread flannels and beards to the Nashvilles, Austins, and Omahas of the nation. Ross. Did you wear your flannel and beard specifically for this segment? I didn't have time to change out of my PJs, quite honestly. And the beard, well, that's a time-saving measure as well. well speaking of time-saving, the article also touts Brooklyn's public transportation. And no wonder when you hear stories like this next one. A parking problem in Windsor Terrace. Car owners, don't try this at home, even though you may be tempted. Some new residents in the neighborhood decided they had no patience for finding parking. Their solution was as close as the hardware store and a can of yellow spray paint. They painted the curb, cut down a span of fencing, and posted some no parking signs. And voila, cue neighborhood outrage. The story reached Channel 7 News, who investigated, prompting city action, some fines, and restored sanity. Coming up, local media gets shut down. Don't go away. Union busting is disgusting. 
That was the rallying cry at a demonstration on Monday in support of DNA Info and Gothamist employees who lost their jobs last week when boss Joe Ricketts shut down the media websites. This was an assault on local journalism at a time when it's never been in greater demand by and a necessity for the public. Speaking of the public, public advocate Letitia James was on hand, as was the Manhattan Borough president and many council members from Queens and Brooklyn. James said, Mr. Ricketts, we will fight you every step of the way, and the voices of these journalists will not be silenced. Well, we will be covering this story every step of the way, including on today's show with two journalists and former staffers who were also at the rally. Noah Hurwitz, formerly of DNA Info, welcome to 112VK, and an old friend of Brick TV, Dave Colon, formerly of Gothamist. It's good to have you back, Dave. It's nice to be back. So can you guys, um, either one of you first, what happened last Thursday? Please describe to me what exactly went down. Well, uh, the, you know, at 4.59 p.m., there was uh, DNA Info in Gothamist, and at 5 p.m., there were not. Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah, Noah was out in the field. Uh, and I want to mention, everybody was working up until, not, not that anybody really went home at 5 on the dot anyway, but everybody was in the middle of working. Uh, and we just got, we, we heard somebody who was going, oh, our CMS, uh, the back end, the, the where we do our stories, uh, it's on the fritz again. And I was talking to somebody, talking through something with them, and then that same person went, oh, God, everybody check your email. And yeah, no, that's, that's how they did us. Uh, they, so it was it a was, total shock. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, it had been a threat that was bandied about during the union drive, and it was something that everybody was cognizant of, uh, and and I think we you know we never wanted it to happen, obviously, but it also did just it came out of nowhere. There was no warning during the day, there was no warning in the run up. Um, wow. You know, everybody was just working. Wow. And we weren't. So talk to me about the union drive and sort of how you guys got there. Was it just a conversation that started in the newsroom that became larger, or well, it, was there a catalyst? It, it sort of dates back to um, February and March, when first there was a round of layoffs at DNA Info. Um, mm -hmm. And then shortly after, in March, uh, DNA Info acquired Gothamist, mm -hmm. and the sites sort of, the, the companies merged. Right. Um, and when that happened, uh, some of us at both sites, uh, saw the need to start organizing to have a collective voice in both the future of the site, which now was going to have to sort of forge a, a, new, uh, a new way forward as a unifying company, and also, you know, the usual things that, uh, that workers want out of, um, out of unionizing. Right. Yeah. Uh, was, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, you know, Gothamist had been talking with the WGA, um, before the sale, and that, that what's funny is the primary motive uh, for that was people saying, people who'd worked there for a lot longer than I had worked there, and they were saying, we want to protect ourselves in the event of a sale, which we're sure at some point is coming. This is one of the only independent media outlets left, and uh, lo and behold, right. that's exactly what happened. Right. So was this union busting? Like, is that what happened here? I mean, yeah. Yeah. That's what it looks like. I mean, yeah. Look, they, they um, we voted to unionize, so you know we 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 campaigned for voluntary recognition for seven months, mm -hmm. um, and then uh, the Thursday before the sites were shut down, uh, we had a vote, uh, an election, 
supervised by the National Labor Relations Board, mm -hmm. and we voted overwhelmingly, 25 to 2, wow. to uh, join the Writers Guild of America East. Mm -hmm. And we were very pleased about that. And then a week later, um, you know, we were shut down. Right. So I don't think it, uh, you know, it's hard to imagine any other motive. Right. Yeah, I mean, so, he, okay. he said things about, oh, it's I've been losing money on this business and right. it's economic for me and these I read things. That. And, you know, it was, it, it's good to keep a business open that's doing something like we were doing, I think. Yes. And, and, Absolutely. Uh, but, but like Noah said, you know, one week we weren't a union shop, the next week we were a union shop. And mm -hmm. the thing that I keep coming back to is the fact that we were so suddenly locked out of our own stories, our own work. Okay, that's a huge thing, right? Because when this happened, I was actually online, right? So I'm on Twitter, and it happens, and you immediately start seeing people tweeting about it. You immediately see people start sharing the letter that came from Joe Ricketts. And then what you hear is, oh my God, there are no archives. We can't, they can't access their work. People who have been working here for several years can't find their clips. What happened there? We don't really know what the what the logic was, but for whatever reason, they yeah they took down the archives on both sites, and they just had a landing page for the letter from Joe Ricketts, yeah. um, and we all panicked because our work appeared to be gone. Now right. it was reinstated uh, the next day, mm -hmm. um, and they say they're working on finding a permanent home for it in some sort of archival way, but for the for those 20, 24 hours that, that it was gone. You know, we were out of a job, and what do we have to to get a new job with but right. our clips? You know, everything that we've written, and so that felt petty. Well, that's, what's an, the, that's really interesting to me because when that when I saw that at first, I was like, man, this really sucks. This is not okay. Like I had like all those feelings, but when I saw the thing about people not being able to access their clips from the archives, I'm a writer as well, and I know how much clips count for, and I know when you're going to another job, people want to see what you did yeah. at your last job. I promise I did great work at uh, Data right. Info. <laughs> I yeah. promise you're just I gonna did. have to take my word for it. I you know I hope that uh, maybe you read it back in the day. Yeah, we keep. Yeah. Do that. It felt petty. I mean, the economic argument is not there for any of that because it wasn't. You could just keep it up and keep getting click, clicks from the uh, from the ad revenue that people yes. would have a meager amount of money. But right. there was nothing in it that that he wouldn't have to keep paying us to keep the stories up. And and I think even beyond what it meant for us and our work, uh, I just I've been calling it. It was a living document of New York City history, and to wipe all of that away, what, days before an election, yes. when there are ongoing stories that people had been—Noah and I had both been writing about uh, the two NYPD officers who were accused of uh, raping the right. woman down in Coney Island, and all of a sudden, that's just gone. Uh, you know, people had been doing—our uh, colleagues, you know, would write about bad, la bad landlords, right. and that's just gone all of a sudden, and people still need those things, and yeah. people still want to know about them. So, Absolutely. I want to know about yeah. it, to be perfectly you honest. You want to know, and, and everybody w w wants to know. And so, yes. if you don't want to keep your business going, you know, I'm going to tell you, please don't do that, and uh, certainly don't do it in a fashion that looks so— Right. Extremely obviously, like union busting, but also don't just rob the world of this necessary knowledge for right. no good reason. Pettiness. Yeah. What is this signal for local journalism in general? I mean, it's not good. Yeah. You know, 
I want to say that there are some, uh, some folks out there who are doing good work still in Brooklyn. Um, you know, there's, there's Patch, there's uh, Brooklyner, there's uh, a lot of... Brooklyn Paper. Brooklyn you're Paper, hey, my old, uh, my old uh, employer. <laughs> I can't believe I almost, you know, so there's, there's a lot of people doing that work, but right. I don't think anyone does it as comprehensively as DNA Info did. Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, for the communities that we covered, uh, you know, that means new locally owned restaurants aren't going to get a write up, you know? Mm -hmm. That means that uh, new locally owned restaurants that uh, might be in trouble for their messaging, like Summerhill, might not get a lot of write ups, you know? Um, and so it's just, it just, uh, we told stories that other people didn't have the resources or patience or just didn't care enough to tell, you know? So right. we would be at community board meetings. We would be at precincts, community council meetings. We would, uh, you know, we heard stories that there was no one else around to hear. So what does this mean for these communities who don't have this coverage anymore? Is uh, it just? Well, I mean, they're, the, the worst people in them will probably get away with things for a little while longer. I mean, these things sometimes take time to build, where, right. you know, DNA Info might do something uh, that was a very low level and it would start to build a little bit and then all of a sudden the news and the times are on it and the post are, and you know we might uh, do smaller things that all of a sudden you know when Summerhill as mm -hmm. you as y'all were just talking about was just our our colleague getting out going we got this press release I'm just gonna go and talk to this person right. and I mean I don't know how many weeks worth of just enmity uh, that that got out of the community, Many but weeks. just yeah, just just Many weeks. and it's and it's something that it's not to say that someone else might not have gotten that uh, press release and said, oh, mm -hmm. this is weird, but someone else might get it and just go, oh, okay, I don't know, whatever, and they just do a little yeah. little a write up off up. the press release. So 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 what's next? That's I think like the huge question, especially for you guys who are former employees <laughs> of this media company. What, what's happening now? What does this look like? Well, most on my mind is that I want to say that you know this, the the closing of our of our websites should not be seen by other journalists as a reason to not unionize. Mm -hmm. um, I think it should be seen as a really really good reason to unionize. I think most uh, most owners of companies aren't going to do what Mr. Ricketts did. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the nuclear option. Uh, but even even when the nuclear option does happen, you know, right now we're bargaining for severance. You know, we're we're dealing with the company through the union, and that's something that we're able to do because we've already joined the union. Right. Um, and it just you know it's a really clear example of how um, those in power can uh, kind of do whatever they want, and the only thing mitigating that is the organization of workers. You know, so uh, I highly encourage uh, people to to. Think about that, you know, mm -hmm. going forward about how uh, they can protect themselves by by organizing. Well, thank you guys so much for coming here and for having this conversation and doing this. We're going to keep talking about this and keep covering it. Hopefully, we'll have you guys back again soon and we'll get some updates. Thank you so Literally much. Literally, anytime. Thank you. We, have <laughs> <laughs> we have all the time on our hands now. Coming up, getting into the weeds about weed in New York. What's the deal with weed in New York City? It's decriminalized, not legal, unless you have a prescription. And then you can get it, right? But where? 
Well, it seems a lot of people have an answer to this last question, judging by the aromas emanating from stoops across the borough on any given evening. But I still have questions. Our next guest is hopefully going to help us answer them. He has perhaps the best job in the business. He's a weed journalist and host of Viceland's hit show, Weed to Get. Welcome to 112BK, Krishna Andavalu. Yes, hi. Thank you. Thank you. How are, so, okay, first of all, first of all, first of all, medicinal marijuana in New York State. How is that industry developing here? Slowly. Um, it was sort of, I think it went through and passed three years ago, but there's been a kind of a staged rollout. Um, and there's a lot of different sort of uh, way stations along the way. It's like if you're a patient and you think you, you might want medical marijuana, mm -hmm. you first have to go to your uh, primary care physician, uh, who then has to recommend you to one of the, a physician who's been through a continuing medical education training mm -hmm. in order to recommend marijuana. And so that's one major difference, which is it's not actually a prescription that you're getting, it's a recommendation. Uh, mm -hmm. After that, that's because as a state-run program, it doesn't have the auspices of the FDA, which is where prescriptions go through. Right. So it's a recommendation for medical marijuana. Next step is to find a place to get it. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are a few dispensaries here in the city, um, but there aren't many. And so it's been a slow, you know, it's sort of one of those situations where medical marijuana was legalized, but it was done so in an extremely slow fashion. And that, right. for, for good reason. The reason being, uh, if you look at states like California, mm -hmm. that um, legalized in 1996, it was basically a free-for-all for a while. Right. And so that controlling, uh, controlling weed going into the black market because of legalized pot is, is right. always on the forefront of lawmakers' minds. And I think that was, uh, that was sort of the main impetus, uh, other than, of course, helping people who have medical conditions right. to legalizing pot in New York. What are the benefits of having legal weed? Well, um, gosh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a big question. Yeah. I, mean, the, I think the primary benefit from what I've seen in the reporting that I've done for Weedakit mm -hmm. is that it helps people, you know? And like, there, there's a, there is science to suggest how it might help people, mm -hmm. um, but there's also a lot of unknown, a lot of sort of, there's a vacuum of information as to what these chemicals in this plant actually do for people's bodies. Right. However, there is, a, there's, there is a bevy of anecdotal information about people who have smoked pot, ingested pot, vaporized pot, whatever, um, and have found benefits from it. So it's an interesting point where, uh, as you know, one doctor said to me, where the sort of legal system is moving ahead of the medical system. Okay. Because it, it, you know, if you talk to pretty much any, um, you talk to pretty much any like college of physicians, like any subspecialty, very rarely do any of them say that, you know what, marijuana is medicinal. They say it might be therapeutic, it might have certain values, but it, it, the medical system isn't rushing to say that pot can help people. Right. Or rather to codify it and put it, make it part of sort of the pharmacopoeia that they right. prescribe. Right. And so it's an interesting sort of balance between the will of voters, and if you look mm -hmm. at uh, sort of national polls and statewide polls, it's, you know, I think in the country it's about 60% of people think that marijuana should be legal. Right. So state lawmakers uh, are responding to that. And they're responding to the fact that in most states where pot is legal, it's actually been done through direct referenda. It's right. been done through people voting, not through lawmakers. So it's, it's a funny time where it's like, yes, it's available and legal. Right. It's hard to get. Uh, and you're right. It's probably just easier to get it from your buddy down the street. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, what about from a criminal justice perspective? 
Um, are there benefits to legalizing weed? I mean, from if you're looking at it that way? Sure. I mean, the war on drugs was a racist failure. Yes. I think that's something that we have all come to, to know sort of in our bones. We have. Um, and many people, you know, people on, on different sort of political spectrums are, are copying to the fact that the war on drugs was a racist mess, put right. a lot of people behind bars, mostly people of color. Uh, so just from like almost a transitional justice point of view from just like saying, you know what, this was a mistake. It's, there's a symbolic element to saying, you know what, let's make marijuana legal because in so many instances, uh, the first time someone comes in contact with the police officer in contact with the criminal justice system is because of a weed stop, because you can smell it. Mm -hmm. um, and it can be a justification for stopping someone on the street. Right. So in a sense, like, yes, from a criminal justice point of view, from a social justice point of view, it is essential mm -hmm. to understand that marijuana is smoked by people and that for pretty much the entirety of its prohibition history, only black people have been, um, right. have been arrested for it. So the ACLU did a study in 2013, almost four to one ratio, uh, blacks right. to whites arrested for marijuana. Yes. So in New York City, we have decriminalized marijuana now, mm -hmm. which sounds like good news. Right. However, some of the data that's been coming out about who are actually now arrested for marijuana are, are pretty troubling. Yeah. Uh, so I think some of the, like in um, Manhattan and Staten Island, I believe it's something like 15 to one. Like, like 15, uh, for every one white person arrested for marijuana, 15 black people are arrested for it. So it, yeah. it's like, you know, it's <laughs> there is a restorative element to legalizing pot. However, it's really difficult to sort of detrain an entire system that has used pot as an entryway into mass incarceration. Absolutely. And real quickly, what about like the legalization of recreational weed use like in New York State? Are we like what are the possibilities of that happening here? Because I think a lot of people are wondering. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's it is possible. I think it's going to take a while. Um, right. I'm, you know, in New York State, it's pretty difficult to get referenda passed that like change right. New York law. Mm -hmm. um, however, New Jersey will likely legalize marijuana recreationally. Given wow. it, what, what depends upon what happens today, but you know, uh, the Democratic candidate said that within the first hundred days he's going to sign that into law. So New Jersey, you know, if you look at sort of our tri-state area, the boundary between New York and New Jersey is mm -hmm. more or less non-existent. Yeah, right? Like exactly. you cross it all the time. Right. Uh, so in in light of New Jersey legalizing marijuana, mm -hmm. I can see a time where New York State is basically their hand is forced uh, to do the sense. same. That makes sense. So uh, what's it like being a weed journalist? What's it like doing your show? Like, I have to imagine it would be a lot of fun. But Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's, I mean, so I got into the, the weed biz, the weed side of it, kind of on a lark. Like, there was a cool story in Columbia. I went there, uh, traveled through, like, the, the mountainsides, found pot, mm -hmm. like, and it was an economic story. It was about how a businessman was trying to take this legal. Right. Um, but then I did a story about the medical side of it, and it was about kids who uh, were using like high-powered pot to treat cancer, and it, op it like it opened up these really intriguing ethical um, sort of well uh, thorny ethical issues about is this a is it a drug or is it a medicine? Right. Uh, is it legitimate or are these parents going too far? So tell me what else is coming up on the show. So, um, so we have five episodes that have sort of the back end of a season three. Mm -hmm. uh, the first one was about um, pregnant women in marijuana. Is it okay to smoke pot when you're pregnant? Okay. Uh, the second one was about homelessness in Denver and how the booming economy there, partly fueled by the cannabis industry, might be leaving a lot of people out 
um, and kind of about sort of in, in inequality mm -hmm. in major American cities. Uh, the third episode was about psychosis and marijuana. Um, and sort of part of the dark side of like a lot of people using weed might be that uh, it can trigger psychotic episodes. And the episode that airs November 7th is about Colombia, which as a nation legalized medical marijuana. So we're seeing the beginnings of kind of a global supply chain of legal pot. And then our fifth episode, which closes out the season, is about organ transplants and marijuana, medical marijuana patients. Mm -hmm. In the state of Maine, you could be kicked off of organ transplant lists if you're a medical marijuana patient. So overall, it's sort of, we're examining what it means, like how marijuana and chronicling its legalization reveals the fissures of American society. And how overall, it seems like cannabis culture is aligning itself with resistance culture. Wow. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Krishna. This was really fascinating, and I can't wait to check out the show. Next, Dancing Deals at Kumbe. Don't go away. Pushed out of an old space, a delayed launch at a new one, but the Kumbe Center for African and Diaspora Dance has finally opened its doors, and it's offering special deals for adult classes that begin this week. Here to tell us more about that and why this center is at home in Brooklyn is Executive Director Jimena Martinez. Welcome to 112 Thank Thanks. you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. I was so happy to have you. So how did you end up in this new location? Well, we um, have been speaking with Restoration Art, which is the um, cultural centerpiece of Bed-Stuy Restoration. Mm -hmm. Really, for the past two years, uh, very soon after we got kicked out of our old location. Mm -hmm. And um, they've been terrific about, uh, they, they have recently renovated. Right. an old ringgit space into new, new dance studios and we began the conversation a couple of years ago about having Kumbe be uh, uh, arts organization residence at Restoration Art and I'm thrilled to say that that's what is happening and we are going to be opening this Saturday relaunching our um, adult classes and our full schedule this Saturday and we'd really welcome everybody to come join us. That's wonderful. Why was it important to keep Kumbe alive? You know, some people, after you lose the space, you know, it's like, well, that's sure, done, time sure. to move on. But you that's know, not what happened you here. You know, several different reasons. The most important one is a real conviction on my part and the part of our whole community that New York and Brooklyn really needs a space that is fully 100% dedicated to African diaspora dance. It's just too right. important a set of cultures to just be the side offering at other locations. And so Kumbe is a home for that really, it's what we love, it's our passion, it's what we want to yes. share. We really invite everyone to come in and really feel the joy and the vitality of African diaspora dance. Talk to me about the joy of oh, dancing. So Talk one of our, that. yeah, it's uh, one of our dance teachers always says that West African dance is love. Mm -hmm. And the spirit that underlies African diaspora dance, we call it ashe, it's that life force mm -hmm. that um, is uh, just so expressed in African diaspora dance with the live drumming. Um, most of our classes, particularly traditional classes, you'll have live uh, percussion battery who are just giving tremendous energy to the dancers and it becomes a conversation with the dancers. Right. And the very movements are accessible to everyone. African diaspora dance is not a dance form for the elites or for professional right. dancers. One of the beautiful things about Kumbe is that we really welcome me and you. I've yes. never been a professional dancer, but we welcome everybody, the whole community, to come in and learn these dances that are dynamic, they're right. thrilling, they're 
come in all different flavors. You know, there are dances where you're exploring your sensuality. There are dances that are uh, a little trickster in nature. Right. There are the ones where you're flying up in the air, like Savar from Senegal. So you can just explore so much and become alive. You are re-energized. So if I want to take classes, if yes. I'm a, I want to go sign up right now, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm certain that quite a few people after watching this are going to want to sign up as well. Sure. Where do they so. go? KumbaDance.org. So go to our website and you'll find all the information. We reopen this Saturday mm -hmm. at Restoration Plaza in Bedford-Stuyvesant. We start off with a community dance day, $5 dance classes all day long. Uh, for young children, for dance fitness, for West African, Afro-Haitian, mm -hmm. even Caribbean dance hall, uh, social dance, like um, Chicago South Stepping is going to be really fun. Wow. So come join us this Saturday, and then starting the very next day, starting Sunday, we, we relaunch our full programming wow. with some, um, you know, beautiful teachers like La Mora and uh, Stevie and Sua doing Afro-Cuban, mm -hmm. we'll have Soka. Um, so just really invite you all to come on by. Well, thank you so much for being here and for letting people know about this thank and you for so keeping much. it alive. For, yes, thanks you know? for giving me this opportunity to really spread the news about it. We're thrilled. Well, I hope to have you back sometime. Thank Maybe you. Maybe I'll see you there to be perfect. Fantastic. Be I look forward to dancing with you. <laughs> thanks for joining us. We'll be back next time with post-election coverage and commentary and filmmaker of 195 Lewis, an ode to lesbian love. That'll be screening at Brooklyn Museum later this week. So come on back. And if your friends missed the broadcast, tell them to tune into the podcast. Now not only on SoundCloud, but also iTunes and most of your other favorite podcatchers. See you next time. 112BK is hosted by Ashley Ford, produced by Ross Tuttle, Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Emily Bogosian, and Kritzi Roberts. Edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. Our audio engineer is Eric Haugaseg. Executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias.